It's midnight and you've got the munchies. Fortunately, this is the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. <laughs> really, it's just 5 p.m. and it's drive time, but yep. whatever. <laughs> All right. From WPVMLP in Asheville, you're tuned to the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Catherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons. And this is Francis Cohn. 93 or 94. But I've had a hard time feeling comfortable dining out in this COVID year. And it isn't so much the fear of the virus as it is fear of creating some kind of demand that makes the worker feel like they have to put their lives on the line to serve me. I've only been to a couple of restaurants since March, and on both occasions, that sinking feeling really killed my appetite. Right now, all over the country, there are servers going to work because, in reality, they don't have a choice. 
They can't get unemployment for not going to work, but they are literally also on the front lines of this pandemic, at some of the highest risk of getting infected, and in turn, infecting those that they love. It's created this whole new spectrum of societal norms and abnormalities, pandemic etiquette, if you will. Amy Berryman has been thinking about pandemic etiquette a lot lately. A writer, director, and actor in New York City, like a lot of New Yorkers in creative fields, restaurant work helps her keep the lights on in the long gaps between creative gigs. But these days, that work doesn't seem to be as rewarding as it once was. My mind spins and sweat drips down my cheek under my mask as I head out to the patio, wine glasses slipping in my gloved hands. Drop these glasses on table 50, cross the bike lane, drop check on 57 and oh, there's a regular I haven't seen in months at 58. I stop to say hello to her. She is unmasked, stands as if to hug me. I back away instinctively and she flustered sits back down. How have you been? She asks. I swallow, nod, glance around, then step towards the table as a bike almost clips me. I'm well, I'm well, I lie. How are you? I bought a house in Jersey. I'm moving. Oh, that's great. And how is everything here? I nod again, look into her kind eyes and think, maybe I can be honest with her. I mean, it's been tough being back, this whole setup out here. As I look around at the spread out tables and the August sunlight, I think back to my job before the pandemic, the best service job in New York City, a true diamond in the rough. In the days before the pandemic, I stood behind a bar and poured wine, talked about wine, ran food. I didn't split tips with too many people, didn't have to travel too far to my tables. I was fed well and it was easy, great, great money, great people. As a writer, it gave me space in my brain to create. It wasn't hanging over my head. It wasn't hurting my body. God, it was good. Now by necessity, everything is outside. I'm a server on a large patio, much harder on my body, and my stress levels are through the roof as I dash around, picking up dirty plates, get asked if I could take a photo for someone, asked to touch their phone. Regulars want to hug me unmasked. People never put their masks on while I'm at their table, and many leave anywhere from 10 to 18% tips. I trail off, and the kind regular nods emphatically. You know what, she says, leaning in as if she has a secret. They're going to find a vaccine, and it will be like none of this ever happened. I stand there, stunned into silence, but my server brain clicks on and I nod and smile and say, great to see you, but as I walk away, my chest is tight and I swallow again. This did happen. This is happening. So many people are dead. My coworker's brother died. My best friend had it. Some of my coworkers were able to receive unemployment benefits. Some had to go without them for months. This bar might not survive. The government is not coming to save the restaurants, nor their workers. I pick up the check I dropped on 57, a table of women. They stop chatting to turn and explain to me how they'd like the check split up, leaning towards me. I listen, but my mind has also put a filter over my eyes so that all I see are the droplets from all those diagrams about what wearing a mask does to protect you. 
I imagine the droplets coming out of their mouths, floating up towards me into the sun, which hopefully is dissipating any virus particles, but who knows? We know so little about the virus still. I think about the droplets all the time. I take the check. A couple approaches me on my way inside, both masked, and asks for a table. I gesture to where they should sit, table 54. I run inside, still processing the unmasked women and the regulars call to forget this ever happened. I am exhausted by this attitude, the desire to erase the loss of the past six months that is present every time I approach a table. I too long for normalcy, but it is as if people believe that the tables they are sitting at have some kind of magical bubble around them, that I am there to serve and protect them when I've really just signed up to bring them a glass of wine. I want to expect that they will have concern for my well-being in return, but with over 10 years in the service industry, I have forced myself to set my expectations low. This pandemic is challenging that mentality. The more injustices that are uncovered, the harder it is for me to keep my expectations low. I drop the check off at 57, noticing that the women have masked up and are speaking to a woman who stopped by their table, a friend of theirs who happened to pass by. They put their masks on for her, not for me. I stop to ask the standing woman to kindly move along. We can't have people standing on the patio due to government regulations. She looks annoyed and gives a curt, uh, okay, while the women sitting don't meet my eyes during the confrontation as they sign their checks. Little does this woman know she could cause the restaurant to lose their liquor license by standing there. I'm not bossing her around for the fun of it. I am just trying to save this damn place. I notice she continues to stand there as I approach my new table, 54. The couple at 54 has kept their masks on even as they peruse the menu seated. They ask me a question or two, then place their drink order. I remind them that they also have to order food as per New York state law, and they nod, of course, we'll look. My whole being relaxes as I walk away. That they kept their masks on while we interacted. I sadly had kind of forgotten what it felt like to be respected like that. I bring them their wine. They order food still masked. I thank them and walk away, noticing them drop their masks to drink their wine once I'm gone. Before I go inside to put their order in, I grab some of the glasses on the now-abandoned 57, glancing at their checks. About 15% all around. I swallow, my jaw sets. I used to be fine with 18, but I was always mad about 15. In these times, I am insulted by less than 20. I wonder if my request to their standing friend impacted their tip. I rush inside with the glasses to put in the order, my anger boiling over. I try to push it down again. Times are tough for everyone, but servers are out here for your leisure, working hard, doing a job that allows you to pretend like things are normal, risking infection ourselves. Things are not normal, and 18 is not an acceptable percentage, much less 15. I break a glass as I set it down. The rest of the night is a blur of numbness. I've already gotten too angry to spend the whole shift that way. I turn it off and swallow it. As I work, I keep thinking about table 54. They kept their masks on when they ordered. They met my eyes when we spoke, saw me as a human being, but they didn't ask me to engage with them in some kind of unsafe way. 
They didn't overstay and they tipped 30%. If everyone added a few dollars to what they normally tip, like 54 did, I think to myself, maybe would make up for some of it, some kind of semblance of mutual aid. At the end of the shift, washing down the night with beer, I tell my coworker, the one whose brother passed away, the story about the regular who says it will be like none of this ever happened. He just shakes his head. Yeah, right. We sip our drinks, bracing ourselves for the coming weeks and months. There may be a time in the future when it may look like it did before. We all may gather together indoors again, share the same air again. That doesn't mean it won't have happened. In the meantime, it is going to get colder. What's going to happen to restaurants then? I don't know, but I hope I'll have more tables like 54. I hope things change. I hope. I hope. That was Leslie Grosh reading Amy Berriman's Table 54. You can find that story on our website, dirty-spoon.com. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson a decade ago, The Marketplace Restaurant is back open and serving its farm-fresh foods with socially distanced tables, outdoor seating, takeout, and adherence to all COVID guidelines. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region and our farmers have to offer. For more information on our underwriters or to find out how you can support us through our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com.
last episode, I introduced my cookbook project that I've been working on, which is where I decided to go around to different chefs in the Southeast and ask them about the first cookbook that really inspired them and and really drove them to become a chef. And so last episode, we um, we visited Charleston, and this time we're returning to Asheville. Yeah, and you're talking to Jacob Sessoms, who yes. is like, for those not in Asheville listening, if you're in Asheville, you know Jacob. He runs Table, he, run, he runs, um, he just opened a new spot called El Gallo that's doing tacos, and he runs All Day Darling, which used to be Todd's Tasties, which is like a breakfast local spot. Um, but he was the first James Beard nominated chef in Asheville. And I don't think he gets a lot of credit for that. Mm-mm. But he really did bring the idea of fine dining. Not I don't want to use the term fine dining because he, yeah. he, he's always been kind of casual fine dining. And it's always been really approachable food. But he brought the idea of like Southern food as a as a luxury as something to truly be appreciated yeah after bite you know yeah yeah Yeah, I I think that like a lot of Asheville being a food city comes from like Jacob being here and the work he's put in and the and the integrity of his restaurants because it is that's a term I think about a lot when I think about his type of food is that there is a lot of integrity to that food like he approaches it they, they always joke that the only thing they don't make in their restaurant is the Duke's mayonnaise. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. And yeah. And any restaurant seems to call itself authentic, but I think integrity is really a word that you're, that you're absolutely right. We just don't use that enough when, when looking for, when looking for, for food that is memorable. Yeah. Yeah. So here's, here's Catherine's conversation and, uh, and story about Jacob. When Jacob Sessoms moved to Asheville, North Carolina from his hometown of Nashville, Tennessee in 1993, he knew he wanted to be a chef. But unfortunately at the time, there were no schools in the area where he could learn the necessary skills. So I went to the French Culinary Institute in Manhattan and worked in the city. And it was at a time where I could actually teach my chef and sous chefs in the restaurants I worked in in New York how to make biscuits because they didn't no, because they're all New Yorkers. Or, yeah. Um, biscuits and grits are like... Yeah, are like and what? I mean, you would think like, it's ones. just biscuits and grits. <laughs> You're right, exactly. Like, this is really, you don't know how to make this, but... It was around the same time when his dad gave him The Gift of Southern Cooking by Edna Lewis and Scott Peacock. It's the cookbook Jacob credits as his inspiration for learning and honing his craft. Um, my dad gave me this that cookbook um, when I was... 21, I believe. Um, And uh, my dad is why I'm a cook. Um, And so the the cook, I don't know, have you ever seen that cookbook? It's awesome. It's like there, so Edna Lewis was um, started in Savannah, you know, cooking in a guest house basically. And um, then she came to Atlanta, and she was cooking in black-only restaurants for years and years. And she taught Scott Peacock how to cook. And it's in the oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, in the late '70s, early '80s, I guess mid '80s. um, 
new Southern food was born really out of Scott Peacock's relationship with Edna Lewis. Um, their relationship made Crook's Corners what, what it is. Um, um, it's super interesting. We don't really talk about this, but the reason that all that's on the map is because Scott Peacock, um, uh, Bill Neal, um, Bill Smith were gay men and associated with James Beard um, socially. And that's why these things are on the map. And it was really, to me, it's very important that we recognize that um, non-straight white male Southern culture fed the change in the culinary direction of the South. And most people don't really want to acknowledge that. Um, and it was very important to me that my dad gave me that cookbook and that I learned from that and learned the direction. I mean, I also have more family connection and the reason I know a lot of this is my wife's uncle bought the building and made Crook's Corner what it is and no s- sold it to Jean and Bill. Oh. Um, my Uncle Cam, her Uncle Cam, I mean, I've, we've been here 26 years, <laughs> yeah. so he's my uncle too, but he opened a barbecue restaurant there named Crook's Corner um, and then with Jean along with Gene and then sold it out to Gene and Gene made it what it is. But um, I just think it's really, inf- really important that that's why the South ended up where we are culinarily. But also like the, how important black culture is to food in general, but especially to our food in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a way of acknowledging our togetherness. Jacob says his father was always exploring the idea of contradiction of being a Southern white male and being conscientious of the impact they had on culture and racism in the South. And that's why this cookbook is so important to me, he explains. Also, the food's great in it. Jacob says he used the gift of Southern cooking to bridge the gap between Southern food and new American cuisine when he opened Table, his first restaurant in Asheville. He says he also paid close attention to Edna's advice on how to treat food, In her cookbook, Edna focuses heavily on preservation and canning with a very simple approach. Take a few good ingredients and just don't screw them up, Jacob suggests. When vegetables are good, just treat them simply and let them show their flavor. You know, I mean, it it explores real Southern food. There's nothing groundbreaking at all, but it is, it really does, it kind of, it's built around, for lack of any better way to say it, farm to table eating, which I don't really like that phrase. Um... Because what are you it's just about? It's right there. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> it's just how you're supposed to eat. But I think that we, especially in Southern food, we forget how important that is actually sometimes. Jacob has always known how he wanted to be treated as a chef and how chefs would be treated in the kitchens where he leads. The machismo culture, the you're not working hard enough culture is wrong, he says. I'm going to take a run. I'm going to hang out with my family. I want to work around what is healthy. And I wish that that was an acceptable way to be in this career. Now, with five restaurants under his belt, Table, The Hangout, Cultura, All Day Darling, and El Gallo, Jacob knows exactly what he wants to do when it comes to the food he serves. Thanks to advice and help from Edna, along with his personal history with Southern cuisine, the food served at Table is what he calls seasonal New American. It was always, for me, an uh, exploration of both my roots as a Southerner and the big wide world. You know, food is 
food is sustenance and necessary, but it's also this um, this art or and um, the backbone of culture. That was our own Catherine Campbell with Asheville's Jacob Sessoms. You can find that story at our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. the Popeye's fried chicken sandwich. How? I don't know. There was a whole thing. I'm sorry. Like that was a big deal. <laughs> I didn't I didn't go wait in line for it. Like I waited until after the hype was over. 
and then I went. But yeah. I definitely like there's my parents live right near the the only Popeyes in Asheville. And I definitely and I've had it like maybe six times since then. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I've I've uh, I've never had one, and I'm sorry that I haven't camped out in front of a Popeyes for one. You don't have to now. You can just drive through it any time. Okay, and it's, fine. I will say I don't understand the love of the the Chick Fil A sandwich, but the Popeyes sandwich is is a thing of beauty. Like it is, it is, it's up there with Elliot Moss's sandwich at Buxton for me of like best fried chicken sandwiches. Okay, you've sold me. Yeah. So Nicole Horowitz is a travel and lifestyle writer in Los Angeles, and she sent Catherine this lovely little look at the uh, Sandwich for the Summertime, which is read here by Mary Rich. The humble chicken sandwich, a thing of beauty, breaded, crunchy, brioched, pickles optional. It's something frequently consumed, but something worth killing over, dying over. If you had asked me a year ago, I would have said absolutely not. Think back to August 12th, 2019. Where were you? Stuck in the middle of a summer Monday, scowling over the monitor of your crappy office desktop, atop a windswept rooftop brunching with some gal pals? No, I bet you, like so many others, were lined up at a Popeye's Louisiana fast food kitchen for the release of their new spicy chicken sandwich. You were a front row witness to the proud birth of an innovation. The upstart grease joint's first foray into the world of chicken and bun confections in its 47-year history. There in the parking lot of a fast food restaurant, you took a single lofty bite into the bun that sparked a summer-long craze and thought, nothing will ever be the same. Popeye's spicy chicken sandwich was big that summer, first touted on black Twitter as a revelation Eventually, more and more fast food lovers, food critics, and casual Twitterites showed up at one of the over 1,300 Popeyes around the country. The sandwich trend grew and grew until eventually the chicken stream started to run dry. By August 27th, only two weeks after its initial launch, spicy chicken sandwiches were sold out nearly everywhere, sparking a number of puzzling headlines. Popeye's Spicy Chicken on eBay for $7,000, or even Man Stabbed Over Chicken Sandwich. The internet was alight in a firestorm debate. Did this humble newcomer unseat Chick-fil-A, crown chicken champs of the last two decades? As Ophelia Garcia Lawler wrote for Mike, the chicken sandwich wars, after a years-long detente, finally got spicy. But the fever pitch didn't last forever, and by the end of 2019 summer, there was a new trend to divert our ever-ambulatory attention, as though brought on by the changing colors of the leaves. In fall, there was a music release by Lizzo and the storming of Area 51, and by winter we were all cooing over Baby Yoda. Popeyes bought and breaded new batches of chickens, and we looked back and collectively chuckled at the summer food shortage, an amusing footnote in the annals of American food culture history. Somehow, despite the headline-making chaos, spicy chicken sandwich palooza passed right over me, likely because the town in Oregon where I lived then was a 40-mile drive through farmland from the nearest Popeyes. 
The most I can remember about the whole debate is speaking to my mother on the phone as she asked me, Can you believe someone got shot over a chicken sandwich? People can be so stupid. Yeah, Mom, I said, hoping we could change the subject immediately and never speak of such things as the dangers of a humble chicken sandwich again. Now think back to July 6, 2020. It was also a Monday. Where were you? Two days after the 4th of July, 2020, itself a momentously weird-feeling occasion, maybe you were watching Hamilton on Disney+, Plus, or taking a solitary hike, or boiling some sourdough bagels, in the throes of love with your newfound quarantine hobby. Me, I was in a drive through line at Popeye's Louisiana Fast Food Kitchen with my mother, who was squinting through her glasses and face mask at a bright, dusty menu board. Two spicy chicken sandwiches, she shouted at the board, which did not respond. Mom, you have to pull up to the order box. She chuckled through her mask, a red, white, and blue one for the occasion, as she put her car back in drive. My mother has never been partial to drive throughs mostly because she has too much restless energy to slowly creep through a line in a parked vehicle. But a pandemic has pushed us back into our personal bubbles, the safe spaces of cars and houses. In this case, her house. In the intervening months between the hot girl summer of the chicken, and now things have changed quite a bit. A pandemic rocked the daily patterns of the world. Facing unemployment like so many other Americans, I moved back to my California hometown. As for my mother, as a retired neonatal nurse of 67, with regular sinus infections and minor breathing trouble, she leaves her house only once every two weeks for groceries. Numbers are surging in our state and our county and our town. The news, which is a constant backdrop to our innumerable weeks and months, spurts out dire warnings on the daily. But we are stir-crazy. It is hot today, over 90 degrees. We have been sitting in her house with broken air conditioning, and a feeling of despair is beginning to creep in. The one that feels like a high-pitched kettle is whistling in your chest. A questioning of the worthwhileness of mere being. With that perspective, braving a fast food establishment to get a chicken sandwich feels like a worthwhile distraction. Anything to move us past that relentless feeling of stuckness. Even the prospect of a drive-through with its slow waltz down an unfamiliar cement loop seems thrilling. So we go for it. After sitting, shouting our orders into the correct box and more sitting, we reach the drive-through pickup window. It is plastered with signs. Masks are required, even from the window of the car. The Popeye's lobby is open to a maximum of five customers at one time. Masks required. Red bean and rice dishes will temporarily be made with whey. We apologize for any inconvenience. A fumbling exchange of cash for chicken rendered takes place. Then about eight thank you so muches and a generous tip from my mother And finally, we start the five-minute drive back home. A chorus of thank yous still rings in my ears. I realize there is a deep well of shame somewhere in both of us. Shame that we are forcing work upon people in a dangerous situation for our convenience, novelty, and only partially empty stomachs. 
A disproportionate number of essential workers are people of color, including some of the folks we just saw. They are people who are thankful to have a job, but deeply fearful of the ways in which a lack of knowledge of this new virus might contribute to sickness and death in our community. I'm happy and sorrowful and ashamed to be part of all this. In a car pulling away from a restaurant, the first I've seen up close in four months, in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a personal crisis. Funniest thing is, my mom says, trying to soothe my perceptible unease, if this hadn't happened, I wouldn't have known there was a Popeyes in town. What about the sandwich fights that happened last year, I asked her. What sandwich fights? In a world gone mad, she had forgotten all about sandwich mania. When we got home, my mom disinfects her hands and her car with Lysol wipes, and I take the fried chicken gingerly into the kitchen. I dispose of the outer bag, the inner bags, and even the paper sandwich wrappers, washing my hands before and after. I get two plates from the cabinet, place a sandwich on each one, and put them in the sun by the window while I wait for my mom. One can never be too careful, I think. Five minutes later, we are eating together. We look at each other between bites, feeling a sense of renewal and refreshment at having accomplished a little thing that feels like so much. The sandwich is as good as anything I can remember eating. I recall an article I read about how the Popeye sandwich, the talk of the town, smells like a family reunion and tastes like homecoming. I think now, reunited with my family due to unemployment, how inadequate and even tone-deaf that statement feels. Instead, I might say that the sandwich smells like freedom and tastes like 2019. And the memory of that time, that place, where a sandwich might mean frenzy or chaos, but never fear. The kick of the Cajun sauce seems to sizzle on my tongue, combined with the softness of the brioche, so unlike the many meals I make for myself, it is so good that I want to cry. It's good, but I don't think I would shoot anyone over it, my mom says. It's not worth dying over. And I can't help but hope to myself that we haven't done exactly that. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by chef William Disson a decade ago, the Marketplace Restaurant is celebrating its 41st anniversary this year. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, the Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region and our farmers have to offer. For more information on our underwriters or to find out how you can support us through our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com.
here at Dirty Spoon, there's a bit of an understanding. You can take us out of Appalachia, but you can't take Appalachia out of us. We're all from the mountains, and like a lot of people from this part of the South, it runs pretty thick in the blood. Appalachia is a unique part of American culture, a long stretch of mountains running from the deep South almost up to Canada. But we're stereotyped as hillbillies. Appalachian culture revolves around preservation, around self-reliance, around not just farming, but hunting and foraging. Those are two large parts of who we are. And there's a certain amount of mountain pride in that sense of self-reliance. So when Appalachian native Kim Freeman decided to break with a lot of that tradition, she got some pushback from her family. Here's Lee Glass reading Kim's story, Hillbilly Vegan. Imagine if you tuned into the Beverly Hillbillies one day and saw Ellie Mae rejecting Granny's vittles after spying ham hock bits floating in the dandelion greens. She looks at her family, picks up her pet chimpanzee, and announces she no longer eats anything with a mama. You can picture the reaction, especially from Jed, who made their fortune, shooting at some food, and up through the ground came a bubbling crude. Take away the ridiculousness of that premise, the mansion, the chimpanzee, and so forth, but keep a family steeped in the Appalachian tradition of hunting and eating meat, hearing a few years ago that their daughter went vegan. If my Kentucky family measured pronouncements like earthquakes, adopting veganism was just slightly less on the moment magnitude scale than the guess who's coming to dinner reveal of my soon-to-be husband Clayton several months earlier. Resulting damages including being kicked off the 125-person guest list for my stepfather's 70th birthday. It was explained we'd be a distraction. An interracial couple at a party in Lexington in 2015 was apparently more than the genteel folks could handle. Fortunately, on that topic, they fully repented. Now my 76-year-old mother is a staunch anti-racist ally and gives no quarter to those who aren't. To be fair, it was understandable that they thought giving up meat and dairy was as unnatural as a two-headed frog. For more than 50 years, I had happily consumed animal products, as had my husband, a phenomenal self-taught cook. In our first couple of years of marriage, Clayton fattened me up, feeding me as one of his love languages, on fork-tender baby back ribs smothered in his special barbecue sauce, ham hock infused greens, a favorite apparently not reserved for hillbillies, and to-die-for macaroni and cheese. He explained to me early on there's few culinary topics as serious as mac and cheese in the black community. His dish contained at least four varieties of cheese, perfectly cooked elbow macaroni, just the right amount of seasoning, never measured, of course, and then baked until the top bubbled up into spots of golden brown. And never, ever was mac and cheese served without being baked. That was straight-up ancestral blasphemy. As a daughter of Appalachia, my father hunted in the eastern Kentucky hills and often brought home wild game, the variety depending on the season. Because squirrel season was one of the longest, I have vivid memories of sacks filled with buckshot-ridden squirrels. He skinned them on the front deck of our creekside home, sometimes preserving the pelts or the bushy tails. With the point of a small bone-handled knife, he cut off the head and slid open the chest cavity to pull out the tiny organs. Then he laid their slender naked bodies marked with pinprick crimson rimmed holes on a nearby table. My older brother hunted too. He took an academic approach to the sport, telling us that during his first year at Princeton, he studied squirrel movements from his dorm room window. 
We chuckled about him needing an Ivy League education to outsmart tree rodents with brains the size of the walnuts they gathered each fall. It takes a lot of squirrels to make a meal. My mom, tasked with critter cooking, would freeze them until an annual wild game feast we hosted at our log cabin guest house that was nestled against the backyard hillside. Game of all kind was served, including local favorites such as grouse, quail, turkey, deer, squirrel, rabbit, and groundhog, and more exotic big game like moose, elk, and Canadian goose from hunting trips out west or up north. Squirrels and rabbits were fried and served in a gravy made of flour, milk, salt and pepper, and the skillet scrapings left in the cast iron frying pan. Both required some care while eating to avoid cracking a tooth on a stray pellet. Our modest ranch-style home and the backyard log cabin were filled with hunting trophies. From mounted glassy-eyed deer heads and silky soft rabbit pellets to a stuffed grouse frozen forever with its wings spread to take flight, we were surrounded by these death relics. I never thought much of it or the number of animals I witnessed being skinned, gutted, and dressed. Upon reflection, it seems a fitting atmosphere mirroring the emotional and verbal violence my father had inflicted upon us. Undoubtedly, were he not already dead, my veganism would have been met with thunderous vitriol and vicious mocking. My black husband would have hastened his eternal dirt nap. Given the amount of diverse meat I consumed growing up in the hills and clearly being numb to animal slaughter that was woven through childhood, my transition to veganism was improbable. When it occurred, skepticism, even derision, was expected. But our decision was multi-layered. After doing some research, we felt giving up meat and dairy was best for our health, the environment, including animals, and could be an outreach to minority communities. It is no secret that racism permeates the U.S. healthcare system, leaving blacks and other people of color with the highest rates of heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, and stroke, which results in lower life expectancies and poor quality of life. We've seen the evidence of these inequities recently as COVID-19 has disproportionately killed minorities. Unarguably, better nutrition could help. My husband long shunned what he calls slave food, including chitlins, pig and chicken feet, oxtails and neck bones, or any dishes deep fried and overly salted. Prior to embracing veganism, we already ate a lot of vegetables and fruit, so the transition wasn't difficult when combined by his cooking skills. We did it overnight. One day omnivores, the next day herbivores. We get a lot of questions like, how do you get enough protein? And, but what do you eat? People are surprised when we explain there's a protein in plants. As for what we eat, we consume everything but animal products. Everything includes about 90,000 edible plants, plus a plethora of vegan substitute meat and cheese products made from, wait for it, plants. As we dove into our new lifestyle, Clayton did what he does best, make delicious food. We'd share with family and friends, including the hillbilly relatives, and were universally met with rave reviews and the repeated comment, can't believe it's vegan. He kept churning out fantastic plant-based food, experimenting with flavors and techniques and using my coworkers as his taste testers. All the while, I watched his passion for vegan food grow as he focused on what this could mean to his community. I started encouraging, perhaps pestering, him to make it a business. It took me months to convince him, finally winning him over on an anniversary trip to Maui. And I know what to call it, I told him as we walked the beach. Can't believe it's vegan. 
We came home and announced we were starting an all-delivery vegan food business. Besides introducing people to the best vegan food in Central Ohio, we've remained dedicated to educating African Americans on veganism and how plant-based eating is their real culinary heritage. We are heartened to see veganism is catching fire with minority communities as people embrace their roots and focus on bettering their health. Then the world turned upside down from a global pandemic, requiring lockdown orders, shutdowns, and social distancing. But our little all-delivery business has survived so far. If this story were a Lifetime movie, it would end with my hillbilly kinfolk come into some epiphany about veganism. We'd snack on some roasted red pepper hummus and laugh about their initial resistance. At best, we just don't talk about it, like Vegan Fight Club. They still enjoy my husband's cooking and support our business from afar, yet we know some shake their heads and struggle to understand, but we remain committed to our choice and like our hypothetical Ellie Mae, plan on living our remaining years refusing to eat anything with a mama. Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2020. 
All the text from our stories is available on our website, dirty-spoon.com, where you can also catch up on our past episodes as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that website is by Katra Doza, Ashley Icomedes, Corinne Pease, Kelly Manier, Garnett Fisher, Paul Choi, and Marianne Papineau. Music in this episode by Francis Cohn, Elderbrook, Jealous of the Birds, Salt, Joe Wong, Penguin Cafe Orchestra, Charles Gerhardt, Nightmares on Wax, Michael Andrews, Uncle Tupelo, Ben Soleil, and Hem. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVM. 